Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here we have our last encore episode for the time being. We are currently in between the series. We just wrapped up the book of Colossians, and we've done a few weeks of encore episodes of earlier episodes of the podcast before we jump into the book of James next week. And here we have a classic talk from James Jordan addressing the question of when the new covenant began. As always, we invite you to take a look at those links down there in our show notes. We have some excellent upcoming events, regional courses, a summer conference, and a summer feast as well. And we also invite you to take a look at our YouTube channel and subscribe over there. We are currently wrapping up a series on baptism with Alistair Roberts. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing when the new covenant began. And the answer to the question, when did the new covenant begin, is the new covenant began after the exile. So that's the answer. That's the end of the lecture. Let's have a break. Now we can say a bit more about it. Why is that the answer? The new covenant begins at that time. We've seen that already in the presentations that we've made in looking at Jeremiah 31, where the passage states that the new covenant was going to come in at that time. And it's important, I think, to an understanding of biblical history to see that and to see that that's when the latter days or the last days begins. So what I want to do is briefly give you this chart of understanding biblical history. I'm not going to try to prove this to you because we'd be here for a week looking up all the relevant verses and considering everything. And we've done this in years past anyways. This is from the past in other conferences, but... The biblical history starts, generally speaking, with a period of time in which the fatherhood of God, God the Father, is preeminent in what is being revealed. God as a person, God as the Father, God as the initiator. Then we move to a period of time in which the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, who is the structure of creation, is primarily in focus. And then we move to a third period of time, which extends into the present, where the Holy Spirit comes to primary focus. There are promises of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The promises that the Spirit would be outpoured are fulfilled in Zechariah's night visions, when the Jews return from exile and the temple is rebuilt. Then it's fulfilled again in a greater way at Pentecost. But we mustn't run to Pentecost before, first of all, seeing the fulfillment in the Restoration Age. The fact that the Restoration Covenant is now recognized as a covenant and as a distinctive period in Old Testament history has obscured this from most who work in this area. And so we want to make sure that we have it nailed down. History is moving from prophetic to priestly to kingly to prophetic phases in that way. What is a priest? Well, Peter has taught us in the past and has written a dissertation to show priest, the word Kohen, K-O-H-E-N, in Hebrew means palace servant. And so the kings of Israel had palace servants who are priests. They're called that, Kohens. And God's palace has servants, and they're priests. And the priest's job, or the servant's job, is to take care of the household 
and basically to do what the master says and not to go off and do anything else. He's not really given a whole lot of liberty to make his own decisions. He's not given a kingdom to rule and told, okay, you decide what to do with this. No, it's all very carefully measured out. If you look at the book of Leviticus, it says everything the priests do, what time they do it, what order they do it in, precisely, it's all very precisely measured out because the priest is very much under the law. He's like a child, like a servant who is being trained. And when he becomes mature, he'll become a king. But you start in this priestly way. If I get anything quite wrong here, just put the hand up and say, no, Jim, that's not quite right. I'm okay so far? Okay. <laughs> and priests in the Bible are primarily concerned with food. Now, the transfer from the priest who's primarily concerned with food and feeding the people and maintaining the table of the Lord and feeding his other servants... These chief priests, these palace priests, maintain the food for all the other servants, all the other priests. See, the slaves who work in the field, those slaves, the palace slaves, see to it that the field slaves are served. And so Yahweh's priests, his slaves who work at the tabernacle, they take care of the food that's for God and for all the field slaves in Israel who are all strictly under the law, and they have a constitution. As a nation of priests, Israel is given a law that gives them all kinds of details, particularly details regarding the cleanliness of their houses and what types of bugs and rodents are allowed to come in their house and which ones aren't and what clothes they're supposed to wear and how every last one of them is supposed to have a four-winged garment with a tassel on it that has a blue thread in it all very carefully prescribed for priests because priests are like little kids and you tell them everything to do. And they do it and they're not given a lot of liberty to make up their own minds. However, when a priest grows up, he becomes a king in the biblical history. And we move from the Mosaic era with its focus on priests to the kingly era with its focus on Israel as a nation of kings. And kings are not given precise prescriptions for everything they do. You read in 1 Samuel that God gives a constitution for the kingdom, and we're not told what it was. We can see a little bit about it, but we're not given all kinds of details. And God does not give a whole book of Leviticus part 2 to the kings that prescribes in detail each and everything the king is supposed to do. Instead, what corresponds to Leviticus in the kingly testament is the book of proverbs which is not a bunch of particular rules that if you break fire will come out and strike you dead instead it's a book of advice that you're smart to follow and if you don't know well, eventually the consequences will catch up with you we're dealing much more with people considered as more mature plus the kings are given a responsibility over a lot of things and god says i'm leaving it in your hands you're in charge of it I'm not going to give you precise directions. You're supposed to have learned from your experience as priests, from doing all these very precise things I've given you. You're supposed to have learned from that. And now you're old enough for me to give you some responsibilities and to say, okay, you take care of it. The kings are still responsible for food, but they're much more responsible for guarding and protecting the nation and other things. Kings are glorious. Priests 
are not particularly glorious. The tabernacle was not glorious. The whole building was pretty on the inside, but you could see it because it was covered by a dark goatskin thing on the outside that made it just look like a big, ugly heap of goatskins. It looked like that dark cloud. But the temple was glorious on the outside as well. So moving from priest to king is moving in a way from childhood when you're very much under the details to maturity when you are responsible for administering something, taking action. The king is a man of action. But kingship is not the last phase of maturity. Because the king has to mature to being a prophet. And a prophet is somebody who rules, directs the future exclusively by what he says. Because the prophet is an old guy who doesn't have any physical strength left. He can't beat up any of the younger guys. Now, if you want to see this worked out, look at the life of Jacob. Jacob serves in the household. He's given dominion, and then God cripples him in the foot. Now, Jacob is going back into the promised land to face Esau, who's coming out with an army of 400 guys. And Jacob, at the age of 99, is crippled in the foot. Now, if you've ever had a thorn in your foot or something, you know, it pretty much takes all the energy out of you. Plus, you can't move very well, and you sure can't fight. So, what is Jacob going to do? He has to depend entirely on his sons. And he can't force his sons to do anything. He has to direct them with his mouth. So he becomes a prophet, one who speaks, and who, out of the experience that he has as a young man, as a priest, under the rules... And as a middle-aged man, as a king, trying to do various things and learning from experience, now he has enough experience to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it, who to say it to, in order to effect change. And so becoming a prophet and no longer doing things with your hand and no longer acting, but now governing by speech alone, is a higher stage of maturity. Because that's, in fact, what God did when God made the world. He did everything by speech alone. So the ability to rule, and not just rule the present. The king rules the present. He has a kingdom. He's in charge of maintaining it. The king in the Bible is called a restrainer. He restrains the people from evil. He restrains the enemy on the outside by enforcing the law in creative new ways. But he doesn't create the future. He manages the present. The prophet is somebody who knows how to create the future by saying certain kinds of things that will shape those who come after. So Abraham matures to where he's a prophet and he teaches his son with respect to things to come. Prophecy then is old age, eldership. You notice the kings of Israel were supposed to listen to the elders. It says King Rehoboam and all the other young men with him refused to listen to the elders. Rehoboam was 42. He wasn't a child, he wasn't a youth. He's still considered a young man at the age of 42. The elders were the old guys. You know, they weren't moving real fast. They couldn't wrestle in the ring anymore. They couldn't very well wield a sword or pull a string a bow or pull it back anymore. But they knew what to say. Rehoboam was stupid and didn't listen to him. So we grow from priest to king to prophet. And the Bible history moves... From the Sinaitic time, which is priestly, we don't have kings. 
We don't really have any stress on prophets. Occasionally a seer shows up or somebody called a prophet, but it's not the essence of the covenant. We move to a kingly time and we have prophets who are ambassadors of God and tell the kings what God wants them to do. But these prophets are not future creators. And then as the kingdom falls apart and the kings go bad, we get the remnant covenant, which is brought in by prophets in the fullest sense, a prophetic covenant brought in by Elijah and Elisha. And the work of Elijah and Elisha is covenant-making work. You study that, it's right in the middle of the book of Kings, and the book of Kings is giving you the transition from an old covenant to a new one, from a kingdom covenant which fails in the days of Ahab, to a new prophetic covenant, which I call the remnant covenant. And Elijah sets it up. And all the events around Elijah and Elisha are very similar to the events connected with the Exodus. Firstborn sons are brought back to life. Jericho is dealt with. You know, the Jordan River is crossed. I hope I'm just reminding you of stuff you know. If this is all new to you, then you need to get through New Wise and read it a few dozen times. Now, if we are moving from priest to king to prophet, that's happening in the Bible three times. Human beings move from children to the middle of life to eldership, which is prophet associated with being a prophet. A guy whose voice is trained by experience to know just exactly how to do it. You know how this goes. You get a young guy in the pulpit and he's yelling and screaming and carrying on, fussing at people and he shouts and carries on, but... You get an old guy in the pulpit and he just kind of leans over and he talks to you about your sins and you just feel so guilty and all this because he knows exactly how to do it. He's got white hair. Doesn't need to shout anymore. The very tone of his voice is more effective than any shouting that a younger man can do. Biography is a course in training your voice so that you can become a prophet. You don't need to do your act with your hands anymore. You can do it with your voice. Well, now you can look at this chart here, folks, and see how this goes three times through history. First of all, the first prophetic era, we start with prophecy because prophecy always initiates a new time. But originally, God was the prophet and we weren't. We start as priests, become kings, and then become prophets. And when we become prophets, we can start a new world. God makes a world for us. We make a world for God, right? That's history. Genesis 1, God makes a world for us. The rest of human history, we're making a world for God. God makes a house for us to live in and for his bride. God builds a house for his daughter to grow up in, and then we build a palace for the groom to dwell in. That's how it works. Well, God is the creator and prophet, and this first prophetic period is Genesis 1. And God... His fatherhood or his initiating personhood is primarily in focus there. And God comes and God prophetically brings about the next phase of the covenant where Adam is set up as a priest. And this Adamic priestly covenant, people are told to obey God and the rule has to do with food. And Adam as a priest is supposed to feed his wife. So she's like the field slave who is fed by the house slave who is in charge of the food. He doesn't do a good job of it, but that's his job. He's a priest in the garden to dress it and to guard it as a priest. Well, we go down through history here 
And there's a failure of this priestly time. God doesn't allow a state. God does not initiate. God does not authorize initiate. God does not himself set up a kingly civil government to deal with Cain's murder of Abel. That's suspended. Man is not yet given the right to exercise capital punishment. But as history goes along, Lamech, the false Lamech, seizes that right to exercise capital punishment. He seizes it before God is ready to give it. But the time comes when God is ready to give it, and the covenant has to change. And this priestly covenant is going to be destroyed and transformed into the kingly covenant by death and resurrection. And that's going to happen in the ark. In the ark, Noah and the entire world with him dies and comes to life again. Lamech, Noah's father, is the prophetic initiator. He says, my son will bring peace and rest, and there will be a new covenant. And Noah comes out of the ark, and God renews the covenant with him, and God says, okay, Noah, from now on, you're a king. You plant your own garden. You be in charge of your own garden. When your sons sin, you pass judgment on your sons. You do the kinds of things I did back in Genesis 2 and 3. I planted a garden. When my children sinned, I passed judgment. Now, you plant a vineyard. When your sons sin, you pass judgment. And he says, from now on, you can exercise capital punishment. And that's going to be the rule of kings. doesn't tell him, be in charge of food. He says, be in charge of justice. Now, fatherhood comes into real focus here because Noah and his sons become an issue. And this father and son thing is an issue all the way through all the patriarchal narratives. The patriarchal narrative is not about Abraham. It's about Abraham and his son. And then it's about Isaac and his sons. Then it's about Jacob and his sons. Everything is the father-son relationship in these narratives. And it comes strongly into focus here. Noah and his sons. What's going to happen? Well, he's got to govern his sons. He's got to be the one to pass judgment on them. When Cain murdered Abel, Adam didn't pass the judgment. God did. Now Noah does it. We've moved to a kingly time. Well, what happens to that? Well, the Tower of Babel, that is wrecked. That covenant begins to fail, and so God comes and he initiates something else. He initiates the patriarchs as a prophetic age. And the patriarchs are prophets in the first manifestation of being prophets. What does it say in Genesis chapter 20? God tells Abimelech, you go to Abraham and ask him to pray for you because he's a prophet. Abraham looks into the future. He speaks words to make Isaac a certain kind of person. He passes on God's blessing. He doesn't have any power. And he's not given any particular responsibilities regarding feeding anybody. But he speaks words and he makes converts. And we read about all the converts that Abraham made and all the Gentiles that what he says brings to pass. And Isaac does the same thing, and Jacob does the same thing, and Joseph does the same thing. And in this we see a theme as the fathers are passing things on to sons. And the coming of the son begins to come into focus. Up till this time, who is the son has not been the primary issue, but now it is. Is it Ishmael or Isaac who is going to be the son? Is it Jacob or Esau who is going to be the son? And of Jacob's children, which one are real sons and which one aren't? And when it comes to Joseph's sons and to Judah's sons, 
a big stress on the fact that they change places and who those sons are and what they're going to do. Everything starts to shift into the sons. But this is a time when these guys are prophets. And they're all old guys. Abraham is 75 when he comes into the promised land. He's 99 when he hears about Isaac. He's 120 or so when he takes Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifices him. He's an old guy. Isaac is 137, is that right, when he calls Jacob and Esau in? He calls Esau in to bless him. 137, right? And how old are those guys? Jacob and Esau are 77 years old. Jacob, when he goes out to get a wife, is 77. When he marries, he's 84. When he comes back into the land and wrestles with God, he's 99. These are old guys. They don't have any power. They only have the power of what they say. They're prophets. And they create the future by the things they say. That's the theme. Now, this is only the first pass through this, okay? This is the first pass. And in this first pass through the fatherhood of God, God as a person, God as an individual who has a son and who has a spirit, that's the main thing. These narratives in Genesis are not about the law. And they're not about the spirit or big pictures of the spirit. They're about persons. So the first person of God, who is the archetype of personality, is primarily in focus. But now, we are beginning to have, you can see the next phase of history starts to come in, sons start to come into focus in this patriarchal covenant. And when we get to the Sinaitic covenant, it's all about sons. Everything is about sons. It's Sun City. It's the city of the sun. Because who gets saved at Passover? The firstborn sons. And so they become the priests. Only since those sons go bad, the Levites are substituted for them. But that means the Levites are all sons. And this whole company of priests is a company of sons. And not only that, but what does the Bible call the sacrifices? This is your problem with your translation, isn't it? Because verse 5 of the New American Standard says, he shall slay the young bull before Yahweh. In the margin it says, he shall slay one of the herd. And then it says literally, a son of the herd. Those sacrifices are all sons. When you bring a bull or a goat or a sheep, you're bringing your son. Because they are all those sacrifices pick up from the sacrifice of Isaac. Every one of those animals is a son. The priests are all sons. The sacrifices are all sons. The people are called the sons of Israel, children of Israel, but more literally sons of Israel. Whether you're a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, you're a son. It was not correct, and the New International Version new Revision is going to do this. They're going to translate it sons and daughters. When the New Testament, when Paul says brothers, they're going to translate it brothers and sisters. That's really not correct, because considered properly speaking, we're all brothers. You ladies here are brothers. We're all bride together, but individually we're all in Christ and so we're all sons. And it's important to understand the Bible is using this language carefully. Son of the herd. Sonship. The son is the king. The son is the one who's going to rule. And so 
the sun is set up and he's given a hidden rule over Israel in the priestly time. This is the time when the sun is ruling but behind the veils and without a visible palace. He's ruling through the Levites. You know the book of Judges? You know that the last two stories in the book of Judges said everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Why? Because there was no king. What does that mean? It means both of those are stories about Levites who fell down on the job. The Levites were failing to bring Yahweh's kingship to bear in the people. The book of Judges is not saying, gosh, we need a strong central authority to keep people in line. That's the opposite of what those last two sections of Judges are saying. It's saying we need people to understand who God is, and then they'll be kept in line. So the kingship is manifested through these priests, and as I said earlier, this is a time when the law is given and everything is very carefully structured right down to the seemingly to the smallest detail. Moses is the prophetic initiator who sets this thing up. Aaron is the priest. When we come down in the Sinaitic covenant, it starts to wax old, and the people jump the gun. Just as Lamech insisted on putting someone to death before God had set up civil government before the flood, so now the people insist on having a king like all the other nations. And that's okay. God wanted them to have a king like the other nations. Not a king like the kings of the other nations, not a heathen king, but to be like other nations in being mature and coming to a more mature form of nationhood, which involves visible glory. And we move from invisible glory to visible glory. We move from priest to king. We move from tabernacle to glorious temple and right next to the temple, as part of the temple courtyard, the palace of the king. The palace of the king is part of the courtyard of the temple. If you look at the architecture, that's the way it's set up. Now we have a king. Samuel is the prophet who sets up this new kingdom covenant. And now the rule of the son, his kingship is now manifest. And the kingdom has glory. And of course, who's the real king? Not David, but his son, Solomon. But the Psalms tell us, that all the kings were considered the son of Yahweh. You are my son, this day have I begotten you. Said to all the kings, the king is the son of God. The son is primarily in focus here now, visibly and gloriously ruling. But that kingdom falls apart too. It gets wrecked right at the beginning to a certain extent because of Solomon's sin. He fails as a king just as Aaron failed as a priest. Just as Isaac failed as a prophet, just as Ham failed as a king, just as Adam failed as a priest, each time these covenants are renewed, it's not very long before somebody starts to wreck the covenant. You know what's happening when Isaac insists on giving the blessing to Esau is that is the death of the Abrahamic covenant. If it had gone to Esau, who has been married for 37 years and whose sons are already grown up and they're wicked sons because they have wicked mothers, who may even have grandchildren on the way, if the covenant is given to Esau, that's the end of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why Rebecca has to step in and act, because she's the mother of the seed. She's the hero in that passage, the heroine. It's the death and resurrection of the Abrahamic covenant. Each the God makes the covenant, and the covenant is almost wrecked right away. Isaac almost wrecks it. Aaron almost wrecks it at the golden calf. David almost wrecks it. Solomon almost wrecks it. But then it gets kind of picked back up. 
But it tools on down to the time of Ahab, and as I've already mentioned to you, the kingdom covenant is pretty much wrecked by that time. Now, it actually comes to two ends, one in the north and one in the south. But the kingdom covenant is really pretty much torn up in the north a hundred or so years before it is in the south. And so Elijah comes to initiate a new covenant and to set up Elisha as a prophet. And now the son's rule over Israel comes to a climax because it's not just rule, it's judgment. But the Holy Spirit also begins to come into focus here. Because what does Elisha receive? A double portion of the Spirit. And so now... Just as in the days of Abraham and Isaac, the sons were coming into focus, now the Spirit is starting to come into focus. The Spirit works through the prophets, and we have the remnant covenant set up at that point. Well, the remnant covenant fails. The remnant gradually is seduced. They're corrupted. They become backward-looking. And you get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is talking to the remnant, and he's telling them, Look, stop looking back to the old Jerusalem. It's going to be destroyed. Look forward to the future. You've got Jeremiah, and he's practically all alone. The remnant has waxed old and gone bad. This company of prophets is failing. And so God renews it in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the new prophetic initiator. And a man named Yeshua, or Jesus is the priest who sets up a new priestly covenant that I call the Restoration Covenant, and that is the preliminary form of the new covenant and the beginning of the latter days. Now the Holy Spirit is coming into much greater focus because what happens in the book of Zechariah when the covenant is renewed in Zechariah 3 and 4, the sins are taken off of the people which the sins are on the garments of Yeshua the priest, and that represents the sins of the nations put on the priest on the Day of Atonement. They're taken off of him. And then the next vision shows the Holy Spirit being poured out in 49-fold power, seven times the power of the Spirit that was there before. The lampstand in this vision has 49 fires on it, not just seven. And now the Spirit is being poured out in a new and much more powerful way in the restoration. And what do we find? We find in the book of Esther and other places that the gospel is really going out in a much fuller way than it did before. And when we get down to the New Testament, we find that there are God-fearing Gentiles all over the place. They're all over Palestine. They're all over the book of Acts. There are synagogues everywhere. There really was greater power and energy in the kingdom during this period of time. And also a tremendous amount of suffering that took place. But they didn't have any outward power. They served as priests. That time comes to an end when they sin as priests. That's Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees. He said, I gave you a message. I put you in charge of my people to feed them. And instead you fed them stones. You taught them wrong. So I'm going to judge you. And John the forerunner comes. Heaven forfend that we should ever call him a Baptist. John the forerunner comes as a prophetic initiator, and he sets up another man named Yeshua as king. He baptizes him to be king. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and he sits down in the temple, something priests never did. Even at the age of 12, he does that. 
He's king. What does he do? He sends the spirit in even greater fullness. And the new covenant comes in its fullness. But that, I maintain, the son is now ruling over the nations. But there is one thing left to happen. And that is when the kingdom is passed back to the father, the father will set up Jesus as judge. And there will be an end of historical development. And we'll have the son's climactic rule over the nations in judgment. Now, look at the side of this again. Right in the middle, where it says Sinaitic covenant priestly sons hidden rule over Israel in the priestly Sinaitic time. Sons manifest rule over Israel in the kingdom age. Sons climactic rule over Israel as he brings judgment on Israel. But simultaneously, the son's preliminary claim on the nations is made through with prophetic messages. These prophets... Don't just talk to Israel and say, you've had it. They send letters out to everybody else. That's why you've got all these long passages, Oracle against Moab and Ammon, and it stuff is so boring to read, isn't it? I mean, you keep thinking, I have no idea who these people are, and I'm reading these long judgments against them. But the son is now claiming all the nations in a preliminary kind of a way. When Zerubbabel is set up as king and Yeshua is restored as priest in the book of Zechariah, the son's rule over all the nations comes into being in its first form. Again, read those night visions. What happens as the sun sets and the night begins? There's a bunch of horses out by the side of the sea. Nothing's going on. During the middle of the night at Passover, God sets a new covenant up. And as the sun comes up in the morning, those horses are going out everywhere enforcing the rule of the Messiah because this is a new covenant. Now, it's a hidden government. It's hidden in this rude temple. But Ezekiel shows us that in spite of what things look like, the true spirituality of this rude temple is really great stuff, and is a river that's flown out, not to the entire world, but just to the edge of the land. But still, it's a lot of stuff going on. It was bigger than what was there before. The sun now begins to rule over the nations in the restoration covenant, and then at the ascension, Jesus' rule over the nations is made manifest by the coming of the Spirit, and as sealed by the events of AD 70. And then there will be a final form of that when he judges the nations. All the nations, all the 70 nations, not just the Oikumene or Israel. So, now we have some typology. There's a period of history here where Jesus rules over Israel, and that cycles through an initial prophetic, priestly, kingly, and a final judgment prophet phase. And then that's followed by Jesus' rule over the entire world, which starts in the remnant period, preliminary way, messages sent out to the nations, then in the Restoration Covenant, now in the New Covenant, and will reach its climax when all the nations are called before him. Not just the Oikumene nations, but all nations. There's a typological relationship then between the former days, the Israel history, and the latter days, which is the world history. Israel is a microcosm of the world. A microcosm is... A small model of the big reality. So Israel is a small model of the big reality, which is the world. How many nations are there in the world? Seventy. 
How many elders are there in Israel? Seventy. And we could just go on from there. In fact, there's this odd verse in, is it in Deuteronomy that says, God appointed the tribes of Israel, the people of Israel, according to the number of the nations of the world. At any rate, there's a link between the two. Now, the history of Israel is a microcron of the history of the world. This is a small model of the world. The history of Israel is a small model of the great history of the entire world. And so there's a typological relationship between this history and its phases and the larger history and its phases. And this first history where God is king in one nation and one nation is discipled is the former days. And the larger history starts with the Great Commission where we're told to disciple all nations. All nations. How many nations is that? Well, it's the nations of Genesis 10. See, it's not just the nations of the Oikumene, but all the nations, including a lot of them that the New Testament doesn't mention, but that are mentioned in Genesis 10. It's got to go to the four corners of the earth. The former days and the latter days. Now, let's look back at our notes. Or let's turn to start with our notes. On page 17, the structure of the former days and the latter days is similar. The former days... And we're not talking about the patriarchal period. We're going to set that one out of the discussion because this is enough as it is. We'll just talk about Israel's history. We could do this three ways. The history of individuals, the history of Israel as a model nation, the history of all the nations of the world. But I'm going to set aside the history of individuals part, the patriarchal period, and just compare the history of Israel and the history of the entire world. The former days... We have a period of priesthood in the land which runs from Moses to Eli. And in Eli's day, the covenant is torn up. And then on to Saul, who is a false start, and then David. And then we have a kingly period in the land from David to Nebuchadnezzar. The latter days, we have a priestly period in the world which starts with the prophets and goes down to Menelaus, the wicked high priest prophesied in Daniel, who commits the abomination of desolation, and then down to Herod, who was a false start on a kingship, and then Jesus, who is the true king. And then there is a kingly period in the world, which runs from Jesus' ascension to the Father's coming at the end, the coming of the kingdom to the Father. We can expand this model. The former days, we have a priestly period from Moses to David. The first part of that is from Aaron to the desolating sacrilege or the abomination of desolation which is committed by Eli's sons. Now, I need to say this too because not all of you know it. The abomination of desolation is not something that was done by Roman armies or by the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes. The abomination that causes desolation is something that can be done only by priests. Only Israelites can commit this sin because the word used is actually a technical term that refers to the kinds of sacrileges that only a priest in his position can commit. And so the desolating sacrilege that causes God to pack up and leave the tabernacle and to allow it to be torn up and allow it to go into captivity is the sins of Eli the priest and his sons. And then from the desolating sacrilege we go to Saul, David, and Solomon in that order and the new temple. Saul is the false start on kingship. 
David is the true king, but his son is the fullness of kingship, and a new temple is built. And we have a kingly period then that runs from David to Nebuchadnezzar. Now the latter days. We have a priestly period that runs from Cyrus to Jesus. And it's in two phases. This comes from our studies in Daniel a few years ago, and there's a lot more about this in my Daniel commentary. But the first part of this latter-day period is from Yeshua the high priest to the desolating sacrilege under Jason and Menelaus. And again, the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel is not something done by Antiochus Epiphanes. He was just the one that God brought in to punish the people because they had done it. It's these high priests who commit this desolating sacrilege and cause God to say, I've had it. Then the second period is from the desolating sacrilege to Herod, to Jesus, and to the Spirit, and to the new temple, which is the church. And then we have a kingly period, which is from the ascension of Jesus to the end of history. Now, if you look at the next page, we can see this in even greater compass. Desolating sacrileges or abominations of desolation. It's an abomination or a sinful act, literally a detestable act. Two different words in Hebrew. Abominations is something that both Jews and Gentiles can commit, but detestable acts only Jews can commit, and the word is detestable. Uh, the translations get very confusing here. But this is a detestable sacrilege that causes God to desolate or leave his palace. And now let's look at this structure here, because they're almost identical in the former days. At the beginning of the priesthood, when God sets up Aaron and the Sinaitic covenant, we have an almost desolation. At the golden camp, God says, okay, I'm leaving. I'm desolating this place. I'm leaving it empty. I'm moving out, and when I'm out, you guys are in trouble. Because, yeah, those Egyptians, they got washed up in the Red Sea. But see those people over there? Those are Malachites. And there's more like them. And they can come over here and get you now that I'm not living in the camp with you anymore. I'm leaving you guys. And Moses goes and begs him to come back. And God says, okay, I'll come back this time. But this had better never happen again. Along the same lines, Israel doesn't, I mean, Israel keeps sinning until God keeps them in the wilderness. But he does keep his promise not to leave in that generation. Aaron's two sons, the sons of the priest, bring this strange fire. Right after God has lit the fire on the altar with his fire, they bring their own fire. And God says, you should know better than that. And while you and I might not have known any better because we live in the modern world, anybody who knew about the ancient, it lived in the ancient world and knew about a sacred fire, and they all did, would have known you don't do that. So those two sons were toast. And God's might have desolated the camp at that time, but the killing of the two sons averts this desolation. Well, the ending of the priestly period happens when there is a real desolation, and it's Eli's two sons, two sons of the priest, sleeping with the deaconesses and stealing God's food. And this time the tabernacle is desolated, and God moves out, and God says, I'm leaving, I'm going to go to the Philistines. So the ark is taken over to Philistia, and since God left, the people are enslaved, and they're conquered by the Philistines. Worship has kept going for a century, but without the full tabernacle there, and not an entirely proper worship. And during this period, we move from Eli and the Philistines, who bring judgment, 
to the time of Saul and David. Now look over at the latter days and you'll find the same things happen, only in this part of the Bible we're not as familiar with. The priesthood begins as international priesthood when Cyrus builds the temple, but it's almost desolated when the priests start committing abominations of desolation in Nehemiah 13. And Nehemiah sets it straight the same way Moses set it straight, and so the system is kept going. But then there comes a time when there's a major desolation. The Israelites, the Jews, allow the wicked high priest Jason and Menelaus to plunder the temple. They kick out the true high priest Onias III. God brings in his servant Antiochus Epiphanes. The temple is wrecked. The Zadokites, who God had commanded were to be the priests, are never restored to the priesthood. But they keep worshiping even though their temple is no longer a true temple. And listen, from the time of Antiochus, from the time of that desolation to the time of Jesus, there was no valid high priest in Israel. Caiaphas and Annas were not valid high priests because they weren't Zadokites. That means since they were priests when they offered the daily sacrifices, that was okay. And when they did the sacrifices at Pentecost, that was okay. But there was one event every year that only the high priest could do, which is the day of covering. And since they weren't valid high priests, there was no day of covering from the time of Jason and Menelaus to the time of Jesus. And I think that's why in the Gospels you see Jesus attending everything except the day of covering, because there was no valid day of covering. That means these sins were not being taken away year after year. They were building up, all of which is interesting and important for New Testament theology, but goes beyond our topic in this conference. But I think it's important to understand that these high priests that were in Israel in Jesus' day were usurpers. They were not Zadokites. And when they went through the motions of the Day of Atonement, it never counted. This period then runs from Onias, the true high priest who was kicked out, Antiochus, who is like the Philistines and who punishes Israel, down to Herod and Jesus. Well, now let's look at the kingship period. In the former days, we start off with David and his sons. And just as God moved out of the camp when the golden calf happened, now we have social sins and David is driven out and returns. The desolation of Israel ends when Solomon builds the temple. But it's almost desolated again when Rehoboam sins and Shishak spoils the temple. Almost wrecked, but God decides not to do it. Well, look over at the parallel in the latter days. Jesus sets up a kingship over Israel. Jesus cleanses the temple, ending the desolation. He takes his seat on it as a true high priest. But as soon as Jesus sets the temple up again and ascends to heaven to rule over it, it's almost desolated when Stephen is killed and the believers are persecuted. But Stephen prays for forgiveness, and so the judgment is suspended. Well, let's look back at the former days. The kingship over Israel, the earlier Israel, ends with the abomination of desolation recorded in Ezekiel 8-11, to which is the great passage on it. You want to see what the abomination of desolation is? Read that. It's the priests committing idolatry in the temple, and God packs up and moves out, and then the temple is destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem are destroyed almost immediately. And at the end of this period, we have Zedekiah's sons. At the beginning of this period, David's sons sin, and they're killed. 
At the end of this period, Zedekiah's sons are killed. And his eyes are put out so that that's the last thing he ever saw. Over here in the latter days, Jesus' kingship over Israel ends. The desolation, the abomination of desolation is the massacre of believers in the mid-60s. The abomination of desolation or desolating sacrilege in Matthew and in the Gospels is not Roman armies around Jerusalem. Roman armies could surround Jerusalem all day long and God doesn't care. They can march through the temple. They can tear it down. They can put pigs on it. They can pee on the altar. They can put blood all over the, you know, pigs' blood all over the Ark of the Covenant. It doesn't touch the temple because they're not priests. They're irrelevant. It's irrelevant what dogs do in the temple. What's relevant is what the priests do. And it's the priests of Israel, the man of sin, who is the high priest, and the massacre of believers in the mid-60s, that is the abomination that causes desolation. And God says, all right, I've had it. That's it. I'm going to tear this place down. And he does. Now, that's Jesus' kingship over Israel, but Jesus is also king over all the nations. You see that? kingship over all the nations, then it's going to have this same, it's going to start at the same place. Jesus cleanses the temple and sets up his kingdom. But it doesn't end in A.D. 70. It's going to end later on in a similar kind of event as we look at in Revelation 20 today. A final attack upon the believers and a final vindication. Because it's going to take a whole lot longer to deal with all 70 nations of the world, which have multiplied out to many thousands, than it did to do it one time with Israel as a microcrime. Now, all I want to do to end this is to point out that this way of looking at Old Testament history, while I've given you a sophisticated presentation of it, which, of course, since I gave it, is by definition sophisticated, seeing the New Covenant as beginning in the Restoration, seeing the latter days as beginning in the Restoration, particularly the latter days of Israel as beginning in the Restoration, that's something we should just look at a few passages and see how that works. And these are similar to the ones we've already looked at. I do want to make the point that if you read the books on Calvin's Old Testament commentaries, or if you take the time to read Calvin a lot, you'll find that he's not bad on this point. Very often he emphasizes the fact that the return from exile is the beginning of God's new work in the earth that starts with a preliminary priestly phase and then comes to the kingly phase in Jesus. But let me just read to you some passages that we might not realize do receive this first fulfillment. Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains, will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come on, let's go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and they will never again learn war. Now, that language is such that it hasn't been fulfilled yet in everything that's said there. So it obviously gives us a strong eschatological focus to it. But how about this mountain of the house of the Lord being established as the chief of the mountains and raised up above all the other hills? Does that, in fact, happen with the coming of the Restoration Covenant? And some of you should know the answer right away. Of course it does. That's where Ezekiel chapter 40 starts. 
Ezekiel 40 says that he was shown a very high mountain, and on it, this pyramid-shaped temple, which has sets of steps going up to it. That's the mountain of the Lord, the house of the Lord on the highest mountain. And there's this river that runs out. So this business of being made a very high mountain is already there and receives a first fulfillment in the restoration. That's where this starts. The last days start in the restoration from exile. And already the mountain of the house of the Lord is established. Every valley will be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. That happens in Zechariah. These mountains are around. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? A plain. Already, the mountains are being leveled. So it starts now in the last days. The last days that are prophesied here, in the fullest sense, we're still in them. Because it talks about nations and not just Israel. The last days of Israel ran down to A.D. 70. The last days for the world in ways we're still in them, the last times. But this mountain is lifted up. Starts then. Jeremiah 30. What about this passage? Jeremiah 30, verse 18. Behold, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places. The city shall be rebuilt on its ruin. Its palace shall stand on its rightful place. From them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of them that make merry, and I will multiply them, and they will not be diminished, and I will honor them. Their children will be as formerly. I will punish all their oppressors. Their leader will be one of them. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the tempest of Yahweh, wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest that will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has accomplished, performed until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, in the latter days, I will be God of all the families of Israel. They will be my people. Thus says Yahweh, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find rest, Yahweh appeared to him from afar, saying, I've loved you with everlasting love, and I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, and you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria, and so forth. Well, this is the latter days, and at that time these things will happen. But it's a promise of the return from exile. The latter days starts, the last days start, with the return from exile when they come back and the tempest of the Lord punishes their enemies at the battle of Gog and Magog in the book of Esther. Jeremiah 49, 34 to 39. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam. Now, in Esther, the palace at Susa is in Elam. So this is concerning the Persian times at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. So this is well before that, before the exile. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I'm going to break the bow of Elam, the finest of their might, and I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of heaven. The four winds in the Bible are the saints. The saints will scatter them to these winds, and there will be no nation to which the outcasts of Elam will not go. The saints are involved, and also this points to Alexander. And the Persian Empire is scattered out. I will shatter Elam before their enemies. Then he says in verse 38, I shall set my throne on Elam, and I shall destroy out of it kings and princes, declares the Lord. But it will come about in the last days I will restore the fortunes of Elam. 
Well, when is that? Is there some prediction about the restoration of the Persian Empire that took place after Jesus? No, the last days here which refers to sometime after Alexander the Great, after the Greeks passed through, that the Persians, the Elamites, would regain their empire. And they did. In Jesus' day, they're called the Parthians. And they're the ones the Romans were always worried about, and they're where the Magi came from. And the reason why Herod was so nervous when those Magi showed up was because they came from that other empire over there, which was a restored Elamite empire in the latter days. The latter days starts now. And finally, one last passage, and this survey will be done. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 27. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says Yahweh God, thus says the Master Yahweh, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Master Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will take away the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land I gave to your forefathers and will be my people. Now, when is this? Well, the dispensationalists would say that it's in 1948 or something like that, gathering of Jews out of all the nations and that they haven't yet received a new heart, but that they will. Well, no, we don't need to jump to there, nor do we need to spiritualize it to have something to do with the book of Acts. No, this refers to the return from exile. At the return from exile, did God sprinkle clean water on them and remove their filthiness? Yes, Zechariah 3. I've already mentioned it. The filthy garments on Jeshua the high priest are taken off and he's cleansed. Did he put the spirit on them? Yeah, Zechariah chapter 4. The 49 pipes of golden oil of the spirit has poured out on them. Did he give them a new heart so that they would obey? Yeah, for a time they did. Whenever God revives the covenant, he gives us a new heart. They lived in the land. And this, in terms of the prophecy that they're looking at here, Chapter 36 of Ezekiel is saying, you will come back into the land. Chapter 37 says, you will come back to life again. There will be a resurrection of the nation which draws Ephraim and Judah together into one people. They die separately. They come back together resurrected. In A.D. 70, Jew and Gentile die separately in the book of Revelation, 144,000 in the mixed multitude, but they're resurrected as one new body the second application of that. And then there's the attack of Gog and Magog, which is the book of Esther. Of course, you all know that. And then this temple is glorified with all the spoil that comes out of Esther. Well, you may agree or disagree with that, but that's how I see it. This is all back then. The last days start then. And so, to answer the question, when did the new covenant begin? It begins in its first priestly form after the exile and then moves to its kingly form at the ascension. Jesus is king now, and then there'll be climax at the end. That's the structure of biblical history. And I wanted to make that presentation so that you'd have it as part of our eschatology survey.
I'd like for us to, whoa, hands are going up. Go ahead, Mickey. I think so. I think that the books of the Maccabees are proto-pharisaical documents and that they are, in spite of all the stuff that you might resonate to in the books, I think that part of it is to say, well, you know, we weren't as bad and that these horrible things were actually done. And some of it just may be, I think, misunderstanding because when you look back through the Bible, the desolating sacrilege all along are things done by priests. And the Gentiles who come in are what God's way of punishing them for committing that sin. So that's the pattern that's there. And I don't see a reason to change it when the data that we have in Daniel and in the early church time supports the same pattern. But continue. In, in the Alvin Discourse, where it says, uh, when you see the abomination of desolation in Matthew, when you see the abomination of desolation in Mark, in Luke it says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and that comes in exactly the same spot in the Alvin Discourse, how, how does that uh, explain the, abom- the abomination of desolation by when you see Jerusalem? I don't think those armies are Romans. I think they're hosts of apostate worshipers gathering, uh, the host of Israel gathering for apostate worship. Why did you tell them to flee from Jerusalem? Because they were, as I understand what's implied in the prophecies, the completion of the temple in A.D. 64, is my, underst- my understanding of the book of Revelation, is associated with a kind of a counterfeit Pentecost. And what happens at that point is people now feel, okay, God is with us. See, I think part of the reason that the New Testament prophecies don't give us a lot of detail is that it's all in Jeremiah. Because it's all already happened once. And they say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and we can punish the prophets because God is with us. Well, this temple is finished. We know that they started really getting excited about They hardened up in their apostasy at that point, and their persecution of Christians breaks out. So that is what I see as the thing to flee from. The abomination is the attack on the church. The gathering of the armies or the gathering of the host is gatherings of Jews for worship in their brand new temple. But this temple has wormwood inside of it. Now he's the one enthroned in the temple instead of Yahweh. And instead of a column of smoke going up to heaven, you got a column of smoke going down into the pit out of Wormwood's temple. But I'm going to talk about that in the next hour. But that's what I think the abomination is. There's plenty of room for discussion on it, but coming out of the theology of the Old Testament, that's the best thing I know to do with it. The attack on the bride is now the equivalent of the other sacrilegious acts that have taken place. Now, you had a, a second thing? Last year as well, in Jeremiah 31, when we're talking about the covenant with our friends who call themselves Reformed Baptists, and they look at, at Jeremiah 31 and say that in the new covenant, everyone is going to know the Lord. So it's not going to be, a, God is not even covenantally with, with the people, but he's dealing specifically with each individual as regenerate in the new covenant. Seems like to me that the reference to the, the captivity, the context there, the captivity really shows that something like that already took place and that simply everyone knowing the Lord uh, does not refer everyone head for head, but all knowing me from the least to the greatest is, is all uh, without exception from the highest to the lowest in, in every strata of society and then uh, uh, progressively more and more until, until great numbers 
will know me rather than every single individual in the new covenant knowing me personally and being regenerated. Yeah, I guess. I'm not sure I caught exactly what your contrast was there. Well, when we have a Reformed Baptist friend who says, uh, I agree with everything about the covenant, but there is a specific passage that shows us that no longer does God deal with us covenantally. Oh. It does not mean elect or regenerate, but now means every single person in the new covenant is to regenerate personally, head for head. Oh, I see. So understanding that the context forces us to understand that this happens after the exile means that since they can't admit that in the post-exilic situation God has stopped dealing with the nation as a nation, therefore that eliminates that hyper-individualistic understanding of the text. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes sense. And, you know, again, the context forces you to see the beginning of that as at the restoration. So, yeah. Each man will not need to say to his neighbor and his brother, Know the Lord. For they will know me, all of them, so forth. Yeah. Parthia. Just to the east. It's where the wise men came from. I don't know that much about it. Who does? Who knows about that? Archaeological comment from the professionals back here? Okay. All right. Next. Yeah, the uh, Maccabean revolt, you were mentioning that that was probably the real abomination that the Maccabean priests were going to uh, really defile the temple. And I'm not really disputing that, but I'm just offering another suggestion that might be possible. But in the book of Revelation, it refers to Jerusalem as being like Sodom and Egypt. And I don't see why we couldn't say that, that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was the prototype which the Jews then at AD 70 were following uh, Jews then became the the uh, corrupt uh, defilers of the temple like Antiochus did but I don't see any necessity to make the Maccabean priests the defilers but I do see the necessity of making the Jews fulfill the typology that Antiochus had set well let me clarify for those who might not know the history, I'm not saying the Maccabees committed the abomination. What the Maccabees did was they failed to restore Onias as high priest after things were cleared up. You have these priests, Jason and Menelaus, who I would say commit the abomination with the connivance of all the people involved with them. And part of what they did was they made deals with Antiochus they weren't supposed to make. So he's involved. I think in terms of the pattern... Antiochus coming in to punish them is just like the Philistines coming in to punish after Eli and his sins. And then after that's over, the Maccabees, instead of bringing Onias back in and setting the high priesthood back up the way it was, they take the high priesthood for themselves and become the Hasmonean line, which leads down to some pretty horrible people. So these things do get blended together, but I'm a little bit happier keeping that distinction between Babylon and beast right there as well. That it's Babylon, it's the Jews who commit the abomination, it's the beast who is part of the punishing agent. And I would see that shadowed out there. Another? Yeah, also in regard to the army surrounding Jerusalem being the pilgrims who came to the beast, uh, there's another possibility that had been suggested by Russell and Milton Carey and others. And that is the angelic army that we're seeing in the clouds that were testified to by Catholics and Josephus and the Jewish Talmud writings. 
or the Edomite armies, or the Zealite armies, or even Septius Gallus uh, armies that came in 66, or even later the armies of that nation. There are like four different possibilities for an army. Yeah, I, I agree that there's lots of different armies that come around Jerusalem. But if you're going to link that statement with the abomination of desolation statement and its position in the narrative, then I think you have to have something before that. And the language, I think, means it. Yeah. When you see those armies, you know the abomination is here. Yeah. The armies are not the abomination. Yeah. It's just a signal that's about to come. Yeah. Okay. The Restoration Covenant. The only place uh, where can we find information on that besides through new eyes? Through new eyes. <laughs> well, I wish I could say otherwise, but every time a new book on the covenants comes out, I look at it and I say, "Are they going to hop from kingdom from David to Jesus?" And they always do. And do I just I have a long footnote. <laughs> If I ever get the book redone, you know, and shaped up the way I'd like to do it now, ten years later, I'd probably put a chapter on it. It's the Sardis period. And there was more to say about it than I said in that book. On the other hand, to go into that would add a whole dimension to the book that would make the book longer. I'd have to weave a lot of stuff through all the way, and I don't know if I want to do that. At some point, you got to have a simple book and then a more complicated one. At any rate, no, I don't have a whole chapter on the remnant. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.